Welcome to this season three finale of How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters and game masters on this plane of existence. First of all, I want to thank everybody who's been listening since day one. You are awesome, and it's really impressive that you have lasted this long putting up with me in between all of these amazing guests. I hope that you have learned as much as I have from all these awesome people I've had on, and I hope that it's helped you in some small way in the games that you're running, or in a big way, who knows. I started this show with the vision that I wanted to interview my favorite DMs and GMs and talk to them about what makes them tick their mistakes that they've made that I could learn from, the really fun stuff that's happened that I can learn from, and everybody else who listens can get the same experience that I did. I really feel like I've accomplished that goal and I've been able to talk to so many amazing people and learn so many amazing lessons myself. I know for certain that I'm a way better DM and GM than I could ever be if I hadn't started this show. And I hope that each of you feel that way too, that you recognize that listening to all of these awesome people has given you a ton of different ideas and things that you can do in your games. Now, obviously not all of this advice is for everybody. And I want to make that clear too. You know, I've had guests in the past who've contradicted each other and that's okay because guess what? Every table is different. Everybody is different. And so your experience and your mileage may vary, but I think it's important to broaden your horizons by listening to people with different points of view and that makes you that much more aware about how other people think and feel and run games themselves. So all of that is to say season three has been a blast. Thanks so much for coming along and for enjoying this time with me and I hope that you are excited as I am for season four. I made mention of this in my last episode but I want to talk about it again. My wife is expecting our second little one who is to be born within a week and some change of recording this episode. I am very excited for that and it will be a ton of fun. It's gonna be a big life change as well though, which is why I have not set a date specifically yet for the start of season four. I mentioned this last episode as well, but please be watching my podcast feed here. I'm gonna release some bonus episodes in between that I've been working on, some more fun content, and I'll probably release a season four trailer as we get closer with a specific date that you can look forward to. Also, I'll probably be posting information on my socials as I've kind of whittled down and decided when to do this, but I'm going to be taking as much time as my partner and I deem necessary to settle in to make sure that we are focusing on what's most important first, which is our family and our kids. From there, I can adjust and figure out how I'm going to carry on the show. Again, thank you so much for your support, and I really appreciate you for understanding the uh, breaks that I need to take. I don't make a ton of money on the show. This is not my full-time gig. This is just a hobby, just a way for me to engage with other people in the tabletop industry and rub shoulders with some of my favorite people, but doesn't pay any bills, and as such, I've got to treat it like that. It's a hobby. But I appreciate you for understanding that and for giving me some grace when I'm sure you would prefer that I just keep churning out episodes from now until infinity. Thanks again for being a listener. Thanks again for the support that you've given me and for listening. That really is the thing that means the most, that there are people still here who week in, week out, listen to my guests and enjoy it just as much as I do. 
I love you all. I appreciate you so much. And thank you for joining me on my quest. With all that out of the way, let us jump into our guest intro for this finale. One Page Mage has been doing exactly what it sounds like for a few years now. Creating awesome one-page adventures for you to use as one-shots or side quests or whatever else you need for your game group. He's got some great advice on one-shot design as well as broader concepts for longer adventures. Plus, he's been working on some really fun games and hacks and stuff for 2023. Enjoy! I am the one-page mage, and my little niche of tabletop RPG indie publishing, you could call it, is I write one-page one-shots. And I got into tabletop and D&D, well, it's pretty straightforward. Around late 2015 or early 2016, an old college buddy heard an episode of The Adventure Zone and thought it sounded fun. So he messaged me and some other friends, and we played through Lost Minds always had in the back of my mind that tabletop games would be fun and despite a couple prior attempts that was my first proper go at it and i had a blast from there played through another larger campaign with that group and then i started branching out and getting some other friends to try it and dming on my own and starting a couple campaigns myself nice yeah i also got my start with lost mine loved it Started it as a player and then ran through it again with my own home group and a lot of good memories about that particular story. And I feel like tons of people have either started with it or have played through it when they're transitioned to 5e. So yeah, I think they really did well with that introduction adventure. Like it, it kind of hooked a lot of people in, had all of the stuff you expect from a D&D adventure. It's fun to talk to other people who got into it later on in their adulthood like I did. It was coworkers who introduced me after college. If I had found this in college, I would have spent way too much time on it. <laughs> so maybe it's better that I didn't. Was that first game, were you the one running it? Or did you decide to start running stuff after the fact? And do you remember your first DMing experience as part of that? With that initial group, I was a player. But one week when another player was out or something, we started experimenting with one-shots and letting others try a turn behind the screen. So I just came up with a real simple adventure involving some zombies in a tunnel, and it was very much inspired by the Barrow Downs of Middle-earth as a setting. It was just trying to get through the tunnel to find the MacGuffin, whatever it was at the time. And real simple figure-eight map, so it wasn't too linear, and a boss at the end, but it was a good little time, and I enjoyed it. So I just kind of kept thinking of other stories a little more complex until I started thinking of more than just one shot, more than just one little area and creating a bigger area. I was like, well, now I feel like I want to run a whole campaign for my friends. Yeah, that's how it starts, isn't it? (laughs) Right after we finished Lost Mine, I had written kind of like a one shot because I said, oh, this sounds so fun and I want to try it. And here I am. Here we both are, right? It's kind of a gateway drug. In all of your experience running games since your introduction then, what are some of the big lessons that you have learned from behind the screen, either based on specific times where you feel like you made a mistake that you would want to take back or that you learned from, or maybe habits that you kind of formed and realized you had to break yourself of because they were hindering or weren't really adding to the game like you thought they were? Yeah, what are some of the good examples you got for us? 
I sort of botched a PC's exit from the campaign once. The player wasn't feeling it and needed some time away from the group, which is completely fair. And I thought of a decent way to write the character out of the story, just so to speak. But the execution wasn't great. The first problem was that I didn't do a good job communicating the plan to him. And I was trying to give him a cool moment, but it wasn't exactly clear that that was what I was doing. So he felt on the spot and didn't really play into it like I expected. Then I didn't do a well managing time during the session, so it all got rushed at the end. You know how that goes. You don't get quite as far as your notes had planned, but I want to get through this before we leave. And the guy's not going to be back next game, so I can't exactly put it off. People are saying it's time to go, and I'm like, hold on, we need to play out this next scene. To top it all off, I didn't communicate to the rest of the table. I really should have brought it up to the whole group before the session. The player didn't really want to because he was worried the others might get offended, and I just kind of let it slide. I recall thinking, oh, it'll be a big surprise when the character disappears. This will work out great. But in reality, it just led to confusion. Everyone was like, what do you mean he's out? What do you mean he's leaving? And in that moment, I realized, oh, I might have messed this up a little. (laughs) So absolutely, please, GMs, if you're listening, if you got someone who needs out, whether it's for a little break or because things just aren't working, it's not for them, whatever, be more open about it. As cool as of an idea you have to tie in the exit to the story, that really needs to come second. Talk to the player about the exit. Let the group know ahead of time so it's not a surprise. It's tempting to just kind of make it a surprise because then maybe you can avoid confrontation that way by not talking about it up front. But it's better to just work through those things the right way and think it through. I like that. And it's advice that actually hasn't really specifically been talked about on the show yet. So that's definitely notable too. It can be awkward, especially I feel like newer GMs and GMs are prone to saying, oh, this is going to be epic. Let me set it up like this without kind of consulting people, right? It happens all the time. And it definitely happened to me too. I had some cool ideas or what I thought were cool ideas. And then it just doesn't go off like you expect because you don't do a good enough job of explaining it to the people who are supposed to implement this idea. So it can be tricky, but it sounds like you definitely learned a valuable lesson. And I don't know if you've had to do that same kind of thing since, but it sounds like you know exactly how you'd handle it if it were to happen again. I haven't had that sort of scenario since, but I definitely feel like if it came up, I'd be able to handle it better. And I think you tie it into a good point about these big cinematic moments. We as GMs dream up all the time big cinematic moments. I can't tell you how many minutes I have spent just pacing around my kitchen late at night (laughs) after the rest of the family has gone to bed thinking about how cool it's going to be when XYZ finally happens in the campaign, when the players finally find out that this is what's going on, or this is the person that did whatever plot point, and thinking about how it's going to play out. I feel like when you read advice or listen to advice on podcasts and stuff, you hear lots of talk about railroading. Don't railroad the group. Don't railroad too hard. But it's hard for us to remember, especially as storytellers, that railroading can be very localized. It doesn't necessarily mean you drove the whole campaign in one direction. It can be those moments too. And if you try too hard to make them work the way you dreamed them up, then you can run into issues there too. Yeah, you totally can. 
And it's easy to fall into, right? Because you're the one who sees where things could go. And it always sounds like a good idea, but whether or not it's what your players actually want to engage with is a whole different story. So yeah, you're absolutely right. (laughs) I've tried to plot less and compensate more. Yeah, compensate or collaborate, right? Plot less, collaborate more. I like that. Exactly. What about some of your favorite memories running games or being a part of games? Any moments that were really fun or epic that stand out to you that are examples of kind of the opposite of stuff that people should try to make happen in their games? I've got a couple that I'll try to briefly touch on. The first is I convinced my parents to play 5e. (laughs) Nice. This is about five years ago. We played the first bit of Lost Minds again. I was familiar with it, so I was very comfortable running it. And we got through the goblin hideout, the Kragmaw Caves there. When they got to the bugbear, to Clark, my mom had a brilliant idea. And bear in mind, I did not expect my mother to come up with this. But my family has played a lot of board games, and they're used to looking at what's in front of them and figuring out what the solution is. So they had spent a little bit of time discussing by committee what they were going to do and that sort of thing. My mom looked down at her character sheet and looked at her inventory as they're trying to decide how they're going to approach this boss fight. And she said, well, I have a flask of oil. Can we tie that to a spear and throw it at the campfire and make it explode? And I said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. The lesson from that really is not the lesson you might expect of, yeah, rule of cool, let your players come up with wacky things. The lesson is play with new people and play with people that you might not expect to be a tabletop player. They might surprise you. And those moments are absolutely worth it when you find them. And kind of building off of that, I won't tie a whole big anecdote to it, but play another system as well. My friends and I recently ran through Honey Heist. And I got to say, we had a blast. Really simple system. And a number of us had only played 5e up to that point. And we had just a blast. So try something new. Try playing with new people and try playing new systems as well. Yeah, I like both of those. New systems make you think about games and rules and stuff in different lights. And then I love playing with new people, again, for the same reasons you mentioned. I love watching people come up with ideas that I wouldn't have thought of. And there's something to be said for how different everyone's games are, right? How different people run their games and their tables and just learning and thinking of new ways to do stuff yourself based on how these other people might run things. So I love that too. And with that, like, remember that if they're doing things differently than you, just try to go along with it. And maybe they just like their specific homebrew rules or whatever it is. Speaking of homebrew rules, do you have any in particular that you like to include in your games, maybe that you ported over from others, or maybe that you invented yourself? For 5e, it's not really homebrew anymore with recent releases, but I love the free feat at level one. I think that's great. I've got another mechanic I think would be good to talk about more that is homebrew, and I came up with it to solve kind of two problems or frustrations I encountered as a player. So first, it has to do with downtime. What do I do during downtime? And second, it has to do with books. I played through a 5e campaign as a gnome 
wizard. And in that adventure, we picked up a ton of books. They were great loot worth 25 GP, but they were heavy and I couldn't carry them. (laughs) Gnome wizard with whatever for strength. And I couldn't really do anything with them except give them to the half-orc fighter to lug around and sell in bulk later. And a couple were good for dropping lore or reference later, like in a temple for like one check. But that was about it. And the other thing is that when you're in a shop, you see a book on the list of adventuring gear and you ask the GM, what's that? 25 GP, it must be worth a lot. And they're like, I don't know, it's a book. So for my own campaigns, I've got a mechanic where if you go shopping or looting and you find a book, number one, I'm going to tell you the name of the book. I got a list. I got plenty. And I'll think of more if I run out of ideas. And number two, you can spend up to two hours of downtime on a day to read and study that book. When you finish it after some period of time, you'll get situational bonuses. So for example, if you read through a book called Not the Right Knot by Commodore Nottington, you can get a plus one to sleight of hand checks, but only when you're working with and tying ropes. Maybe there's a book about forestry, and so it gives you a plus one on nature checks, but only when you're in the woods. And I've got a few other rules to go with it about having to brush up periodically so you don't forget what you learned and how many times a character can benefit from the mechanic. But I really like it, and I kind of came up with it to solve something that I thought was frustrating as a player, and I didn't want my players to get frustrated with themselves, potentially, through the course of the campaign. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oftentimes, if you're planning for specific books or scrolls or whatever to be found, then you've got something you want to tie them in to later. And it's kind of silly to like give a bunch of superfluous ones or to give them to people who can't really handle them or they're meaningless to. So that's a fun and interesting way to kind of add that wrinkle to the game and let them engage further. So that's an awesome example. That one is actually one that I translated into a one-page GM supplement and put up for my patrons. A couple other things that I've done are also things that come from what I've played or done as a GM. Like that little one-shot, my very first one-shot that I talked about with the zombies in the tunnel actually became the basis for one of my one-page mage adventures. Literally years later, I just pulled up the notes. I still had them on Google Drive and said, oh, I could turn this into something worth giving to other people to try. I like that. I have a whole Google Drive folder full of of little one-shots I've run for different groups and for different occasions that it would be fun to try to convert. The problem is, maybe you're a much more meticulous note-taker and planner than me, but mine are just like cryptic five lines worth of information, and then the rest is all stored up in my head and I make it work. That's not really something you can sell to people. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, for yourself, for one shots, that's probably enough. You mentioned meticulous planner. And I will say, since we're talking about general advice for GMs, I think one good piece of advice that I like giving is to come up with a calendar for your campaign. If you're doing a broader campaign, I've got a pretty large spreadsheet that I put notes into for the campaign to keep track of time. And I think that is probably the number one thing, more than coming up with fancy names or a map for the setting or NPCs, keeping track of time and making it clear that whether the characters win or lose, the sun comes up and the world still spins. Stuff is happening in this world. And keeping track of that 
really can help your players feel like, oh, this is a world that the GM has built. I want to explore it. It's much less like video game feel where you just show up to an area and then it triggers all of the encounters, right? It's more living and breathing like that, more immersive. I like it. Do you have any DMs, GMs, or designers that you really look up to? Were there people that you got a lot of advice from or content that you consumed that you found super helpful? A lot of people, I think, will say the same thing, but Matt Colville and his Running the Game series on YouTube was a real big resource for me when I was just getting started. Whenever I kicked off the main campaign that I'm running now with friends, there were a couple new players, and because of that, I just ran the Delian Tomb adventure that he puts together in those early videos. And then I just came up with a simple plot hook to tie it into the rest of the setting. He does a great job breaking things down. In terms of people I look up to, especially when you mentioned designers, there's so many good ones that I look up to. But I do want to give a shout out to Abyssal Brews. A lot of folks on Twitter know Abyssal Brews and just a great member of the community, always positive, very clean the way they put out stuff. They keep to the schedule. And you know you're getting a quality product whenever they put something out and just such a great member of the community in terms of lifting up other voices and collaborating with others and working with others and everything. Abyssal Brews is just great. I wholeheartedly agree. Matthew and Fernando are good friends. Fernando is actually one of my patrons for this show. So shout out to Fernando. I know you're listening. Fernando and Matthew both. Yeah, your illustrations are great, Fernando. Matthew's okay too, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Both really great people. They were on the show a year and a bit ago, and it was fun to chat about how they got into this whole thing too. Oh, well, I will definitely have to go grab that out of the archives. I haven't caught that one yet. And now let's hear from some of my awesome sponsors. Let's kick things off with my friends from Tomes of the Chaos Bard, an actual play podcast. Hurry up, Quill! They're getting away! When a band of heroes begin an adventure, Salem the Chaos Bard will be there. Someone has to write it down, you know. We have Henley, a ranger with a haunted past. Boudreaux, a shaman on the search to save his family. Lila and Garatha, two people in a struggle to find peace in one mind. Roscoe, ready to blaze the trail and prove his worth. Fenrir, who is looking for his big story to be a part of. And we are here to tell it, Quill, in Tomes of the Chaos Bard, a family-friendly, fantasy-focused actual play podcast with original songs and music. Come, join us as we unroll the scroll to tell the tale. (laughs) Solemn am I, clever and sly. Solemn, the Chaos Bard. Awesome. DM Dave from Tomes of the Chaos Bard was on my show a while ago. It's a really fun, family-friendly show for all ages, so you should check it out. They're local to me, and they have a special place in my heart. I got to hang out with them at Salkana a couple of weeks ago, and it was a lot of fun. Next up is Myth Mist Games. From ghosts to zombies to fairies and more, curious things are happening around Salchester. The Northwood Fables is a series of mystery party games for 8 to 11 players where you and your party go on a whirlwind adventure solving Salchester's most mythical mysteries. 
Find the games at mythmistgames.itch.io. That's M-Y-T-H-M-Y-S-T games.itch.io. Can you solve the mysteries? Mythmist games are a lot of fun. They're kind of made for group play and role play. They don't really have a lot of hard, crunchy rules. They've got some fun scripts that you can read through. Perfect party game, perfect game to play on a stream as well. Next up, Death Saving Bros. Looking for an actual play podcast that feels like you and your friends playing together? Then check out season two of Death Saving Bros, launching next week, March 21st, 2023. The new campaign of this two-time award-recognized D&D podcast takes place in Arkshine, a magical academy adapting to a world where magic is unreliable. The Season 2 trailer is available now at deathsavingbros.com. And make sure to listen to the full campaign of mystery and fun when it launches on March 21st on your podcasting app of choice. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Podcasteditors.online is the group that edits this podcast, and they do an awesome job, as you can hear. They also do actual play podcasts or any other kind of podcast that you may have. So take a look at their website at their great rates and see if you are interested in buying some editing hours a la carte. And if you tell them I sent you, you might get a little discount on your first couple of hours there of your podcast. So check that out. Videoeditors.online, also very useful if you are a YouTube creator, if you have any kind of video content, TikTok or Reels, short form YouTube shorts, they do it all. So go check out videoeditors.online if you're a video creator and you want to take advantage of that too. So same deal if you want to mention How Not to DM sent you, I'm sure they'll hook you up with some discounted hours to start. So check those both out if you are a podcast or video creator or both. With all that out of the way, Let's dive into this week's version of Quickfire Chaos. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! For this edition of Quickfire Chaos, one page mage and I are going to be using some random encounter generators online to create some fun scenarios to make awesome, memorable one-shots from. So I've got a bunch of random encounter generators just from the internet. I'm gonna click on a few and you can just show us how your brain works. So we're gonna start with Swamp Encounters. 36. The players happen upon a half-sunken swamp village with a small hill in the middle. On the small hill is a rune stone that reads something in Dwarvish. That's pretty vague, but yeah, what direction would you take this to make an interesting and engaging one-shot for a group that is looking for a fun one-off game night? They come across this village, and it is sunken, and it is actually recently sunken, and all the villagers have fled. So they're safe, no need to worry, but the players need to lift the curse that sunk it and to do so they first have to go through i would say a skill challenge to investigate the sunken ruins that they can get to then they would find a corresponding runestone that they have to take to the hill when they do that it will explode so it's going to be a trap encounter but the explosion is going to blow open a chamber underneath the hill 
there's going to be two to three rooms underneath. At this point, that's at least a couple encounters, so we probably only have room for two to three more encounters. So yeah, two to three rooms under the hill. At least two of those last couple encounters are going to be monsters. So we've got a little combat and let's say a puzzle. Yep, a monster encounter, a puzzle encounter, and then another monster encounter to break the curse. So there you go, that's five encounters. A skill challenge to find the other runestone, a trap when you are activating the runestone, a monster, puzzle, monster. Next one is urban encounters. 75. A shopkeeper kicks a disgruntled young man out of his shop saying, I don't read cards. How many times do I have to tell you? Figure it out yourself. So yeah, they're walking along the street and this happens. What kind of little quest would you send them on? The young man with the cards, of course, deck of cards in a tabletop game. Always exciting and suspicious, right? He says, I need your help. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these. I was told it was a bargain. I bought it and I thought maybe I could resell it, but this guy says they're all blank. He shows the players each a card and what you end up with is that this is not a deck of many things as a GM might be inclined to do, but it is a deck of encounters. Whenever the kid holds one up, the players can see the picture and they are drawn into a sort of pocket dimension and they have to beat the encounter. Whenever they beat the encounter, they return and the image stays there instead of being blank or whatever. And they have to do this a certain number of times in order to return the deck to its normal valuable state. I like it. I thought you were going deck of many things. That would be really hard to make a one-shot around, probably. But what you did, I think, works even better. You can create a table of random encounters that these cards contain, right? That get rolled on, and it's kind of different every time. That's fun. I like it a lot. Next, let's do beach encounters. That sounds nice. 25. The sand here is a riot of many hues stained by wild magic. Magic cast while standing on this sand works chaotically. Sleeping on it brings prophetic nightmares. Eating it is mutagenic. All of these properties are preserved even if the sand is removed from the beach. So yeah, weird sand. What do you want to do with that? The adventuring party has been sent to this beach to acquire some sand. But what they don't know is that the local wildlife does not like it when you take some sand away. The properties stay, but how far away the sand gets is another question. Everything seems perfect until you get there. As soon as they step out onto the sand, you've got an encounter. As things start shifting, reality seems to be warping as the wild magic begins taking effect. And from a wild magic table or something else, you could probably come up with a couple additional effects that happen right away that the players may have to solve. I would think maybe a skill check or a saving throw, something like a wisdom save to determine that an illusion is occurring. They start seeing things that aren't right. And before they get a chance to actually start scooping up the sand, a strange abomination creature shows up. The wild magic has warped something that might be a little 
normal otherwise, so kind of a chimera of sorts. A giant scorpion, except it's got a bear head or something like that. Come up with your favorite amalgamation of a couple creatures to rise up out of the sand and attack the players. Once they defeat it, they get the sand, but as they get away, other creatures may show up to attack them. And ultimately, there ends up being a chase. And during the chase, when they get away from the creatures pursuing them, they come to a small hut. And what they don't realize is the hut is also a creation of the wild magic's natural defenses. It's a very kind person who is very clearly not a hag or something that would arouse suspicion otherwise, but a very kind person who offers them some treats. And then the effects of eating the magic sand kick in because, of course, that's one of the special ingredients in the treat. And eventually, the players may get away and get through these trials and tribulations to return their bag of sand to their patron and claim their reward. Perfect. I love it. Lastly, let's jump in and do a jungle encounter. 85. A lone shack stands in a clearing. A humanoid wearing a brightly colored mask stirs a bubbling pot. In exchange for some rare ingredients, they will trade you some of their potion. Oh yeah, classic. Pick five ingredients and you gotta get them from elsewhere in the jungle. And the reward is a really sweet potion. I would probably say three servings of it, possibly even one of which goes into effect immediately, but then they can save a couple for later. If it's really sweet, put a timestamp on that, put an expiration date on that for them to use, depending on what encounters you've got planned for the party next. But they've got to go into the jungle and that's great, easy encounter building. So first you can fill it out with some monsters, claw of this, toe of that, You can do some skill challenges. Instead of just saying, roll me a nature check to see if you find the leaf of the upside down fern, do a skill challenge. You can't just look and find the leaf. You got to look for the tracks of the animal and then the signs of where the animal goes to eat. And then you got to identify the leaf. Multiple steps to build a skill challenge to get one ingredient. So that's an encounter. A couple combat encounters. If your group is not big on combat, it's okay if your whole session doesn't have combat. Skip the monsters to cut off the toe. Instead, fill it out with an RP encounter. The person brewing the potion is not the only person in the whole jungle. You might have to talk to uh, George, who's uh, over the next hill. He's got two of the ingredients, but you got to bargain with him, or you got to play a game of dice with him in order to win one of them maybe buy one of them off of someone else in the jungle. Lots of different ways you could build encounters besides just the very simple, let me grab a cool monster that would be in a jungle that I really want them to fight and say they got to cut off an appendage for a potion ingredient. One more encounter I think would be fun. The fifth ingredient, the hardest one, living in the jungle is a Rakshasha and you cannot kill him, but he wears the fifth ingredient on a pendant on his neck. And how do you get it off of him? Do you find a way to sneak it off of him, to trick him, to just fight him and uh, knock him unconscious? Do you convince him? Do you bribe him? How do you get that off the pendant, off of his neck? 
but there's a stipulation that if you kill him because it's linked to him, then it will go bad and the whole mission's failed. You made a good point about mixing up the encounter design as well. It's going to be a lot more fun if you have variants. Like, it's not just go kill this, go kill that, go kill that. You've got a little bit of everything that you've got to deal with. Awesome. So, yeah, you've done it. You've run the gauntlet. You've completed the four random one-shot challenge. So, well done. And it's fun to listen to someone else do the same thing that I do all the time because people think of totally different ideas, but it's always cool to hear what other people think of. I really like that. And I kind of like that methodology of a way to come up with it is grab a random table or something like that and build off of it. Yeah, I do it all the time. If I'm ever stuck for ideas, it's super useful to just go because someone on the internet has like made this table before. I guarantee it. So you can go find it out there. So yeah, tell us about how you became the one page mage. Well, it was just one of those nights where I couldn't sleep and I was thinking about things and it just kind of came to me this idea that, hey, I could make one shots that were really easy to run and just put them out. That could be a thing. And I kind of started thinking about it. And really, a lot of it started with what I talked about earlier, Matt Colville's first Delian Tomb adventure. And I thought about some one shots that I had run for friends to introduce them to the game. And I thought about how when I was looking for one shots to introduce people to the game, A lot of times I went online and was reading forums and stuff and people would say, oh, here's a link to such and such on DMs Guild. It's a great one shot. I would go pull it up and it's like three or four pages long and it's kind of got this backstory to it and a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is cool, but this isn't what I need. I just need Delian Tomb where it just fits on a page. There's just a few rooms and there's a real simple story and you can hook people in and just run with it. And I was like, I could do that with the stuff I've already run. So it was the middle of the night and I pulled out my phone and I started thinking of ideas and I got a whole list of them, 20 some ideas of, hey, here's a plot hook, right? Or here's something I did that I could write down and just kind of went from there. The name itself, I just kind of brainstormed a few ideas that night. And I thought about something like One Shot Wonder or something like that. And I just kind of came up with the one-page mage as a little alliteration kind of thing and decided to roll with it. It is really good. I like the alliteration. And I think it definitely gives people an idea of exactly what you are all about. And my coming up with How Not to DM was very similar. I think it was like me in the middle of the night. I relate with that a lot. And it's cool that you had a bunch of kind of ideas already to go that you were able to lean on at the beginning there. The very first adventure that I put out as One Page Mage into the Haunted Forest was an adventure I had actually run twice, once for some family members, a group of cousins at a holiday gathering to see if they enjoyed it, right? I just wanted to introduce it to some family and have some fun. And then I ran it again with some other friends that I wanted to introduce it to. And I was like, okay, yeah, this works pretty well. It's got all the things you need. A small dungeon and few encounters, some monsters, get some dice rolling. And it kind of was born out of this idea, playing with new people. How do you make that easy for others, right? Or what do you do when your friend has already run through Delian Tomb? Maybe you got three friends, 
who have all run through the Delian tomb, and you got your fourth friend who you wanted to introduce D&D to, what do you run, right? My idea was, well, let me be the person that gives people the alternative, right? Not because Delian tomb is flawed or bad or anything like that, but because sometimes you just need more options. Yeah, you do. And I don't know what percent of people's games they play are one shots, but it's definitely more than zero and it definitely happens. And it's nice to have stuff like this to lean on. I like that you were trying to think of a way that you could really help people solve for that problem. Yeah, a great idea. And I'm glad that someone's out there doing it. Yeah, it's about getting more people to play a tabletop game together and have fun. And then not only that, but keep people playing, right? Because on one hand, one shots are awesome for introducing someone new. And then on the other hand, they're awesome for when exactly how I started playing them, when one person can't make it, don't cancel, run a one shot. It's a great little thing to just throw in there, change it up, do something fun, still get together, still hang out, have a good time and not feel guilty because so-and-so is going to miss out on the story of the main campaign. Exactly. I noticed earlier while we were doing the quickfire chaos that you were kind of like talking about the specific elements of the one shot that you were kind of making up on the fly. Like, oh, we've got one of these, one of these, or two of these. So tell us, what have you found are some of the essential elements of a great one shot? First of all, I try to always target five encounters. I played a little bit with that in a couple ways. I've released one or two adventures with only four encounters, but an encounter might repeat. And I've definitely released some one-shots where the dungeon is bigger. It's got more than five rooms. And I kind of cheat a little bit by saying, well, this is encounter 1A, 1B, 1C, right? The idea is that You should be able to get through the whole thing in five encounters or so, because at least in my experience, as well as others that I've seen online, just turns out to be about the right length for a one-shot. So I'm always looking at the five-encounter target. The next thing is I want to either A, if it's a dungeon crawl, then sure, it's going to be loaded up in combat, maybe all encounters, or B, I want to offer variety. One-page dungeons have been a thing for a lot longer than one-page mage. People have been making one-page dungeons with that term for a while now. But I try to write one-page adventures. And I try to focus on the fact that not every adventure has to be a dungeon crawl. So I will have adventures that have no combat. I'll have adventures that only have one combat encounter. And the short list of encounters, different things you can do. I just try to make sure I put some variety in there so people don't feel like it's just the same thing the whole session. And then it's like, what did we do? I've kind of think through what makes sense in terms of building off of the plot hook that I'm starting with and what's going to add variety. From there, like I was going through earlier, I'll look at combat, RP, traps, skill checks, but I usually try to avoid those because a lot of times on paper, they're just so short. It almost doesn't even count as an encounter, but sometimes not. So a lot of times I'll do skill challenges. I think those are pretty great. And puzzles and anything else you can think of, just general scenarios that maybe it could be solved with a simple skill check, like crossing a ravine or something. 
but the party's going to have to do a little thinking to get around. When I am thinking about encounters and stuff, I think along similar lines, I might not have the same formula, but it's similar enough that I get the concept. We were playing Quickfire Chaos, and I kind of just made you off the cuff think of just how you'd randomly plan for specific scenarios that we got from generators online. But in general, where do you find that you get your inspiration for the next one shot that you're going to publish, one that you're going to put on your list to work on later? A lot of times it starts with a plot hook or something like that. If it's not already just a scenario that I ran through, I've got a couple things where I ran through it with my friends and I decide that would make a pretty good one shot. Let me go ahead and turn it into a one shot. But a lot of times it starts with some sort of plot hook or scenario. And I just kind of think through, well, how could you resolve this in a session? And that really is a big part of it. A lot of the work goes into thinking, how do I draw the line between, oh, this is just one encounter. Let's just resolve it. And, oh, this is a whole like three session mini series of events that just goes on and on, right? How can I provide a GM enough of a framework to keep their session contained and have it interesting and be fun? I'll think of something like, what if there was a lighthouse and you had to go get the lighthouse lit by midnight or something like that because an important ship is coming in, but the lighthouse has got bandits or something like that. And it's like, I'll start building that out. Or what if I just want to do like a simple crypt? Why is there a crypt? Well, because this ancient mage was buried there or something. Okay, and I just start asking why. Why does it matter? Okay, someone was buried there. Well, some neighborhood kids went and got into trouble. They were messing around and fell down a hole and one of them got cursed. And now they need the local adventurers to go break the curse. Just kind of thinking of things and then asking why. And then, okay, now that I know why, how do I solve it? Other times, it's just straight up something out of pop culture. I mean, I've got a few things that are possibly obvious, possibly not, that it's just straight up me thinking, oh, that'd be fun to just turn that into a D&D adventure. And so I did. <laughs> I make sure I change enough that I'm not just completely ripping it off or going to get in trouble or anything like that. But a lot of times what it ends up being is that I start with that idea and I just tweak it. I change it, I massage it, I condense it, and I go through the process. And at the end, maybe it's less recognizable, but at least I know where it came from. So whenever I run it or whenever I publish it, I kind of get that little secret DM smile. I think a lot of people know you put in little references to your campaign and your games for yourself. And it's always fun to watch the players go right by it and be none the wiser. But then sometimes it's really fun when they connect the dots all of a sudden and they go, you did not do that. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> I definitely do that in my very own games and it's always fun to see if they notice it. It's almost like personal Easter eggs. I would love for someone to message me after this and say, yes, I know exactly which adventure you ripped straight out of Link to the Past. Or... Yes, I know exactly which Beatles song you turned into an adventure and which children's book you referenced in the process. Oh, a Beatles song? Now you've got me intrigued. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to do a little digging. When you are planning on your next 
one shot that you're going to write. What is the most difficult part about getting the project going or started, do you find? Besides just making time for it, lots of us in the TTRPG community, we're doing this in our spare time. If we're making any money at all, it's dice money. It's for fun. And we're just finding time in our daily lives away from the day job to get it going. But besides that, one of the things that I get hung up with is sometimes I'll get the whole draft written. I'll have the plot hook and I'll have the basic encounter structure and maybe some NPC names and maybe even like a prototype map. And then I'll be like, okay, now what level do I want to balance this for? (laughs) There's been a few times where I start out and I know exactly what level I'm writing something for because, oh, I really want to include this monster. I just want to build a cool one shot around fighting such and such. And so I know exactly what level it's going to be. But a lot of times I'll kind of have it set up and I'll be like, okay, if I do it level four, then I need to come up with something else here because that's not going to be strong enough. Or if I do it level six, ah, that's, I kind of get paralyzed sometimes balancing it. Or I think, oh man, I've written way too many level two adventures. I don't need to put out another level two adventure. I need to figure out a way to make this work for level 10. And now I've got to go really change some things because like, well, if you got a level 10 adventure, they would just cast a spell and solve the plot hook and walk away. And I've got to go rebalance some things and rethink some things. So that's one of the places I get hung up on. And I'll just turn a page in the notebook and come back to that draft weeks or months later, maybe, before I finally actually get it across the finish line. Do you play test all of your one shots or do you just put them out on the ether as is? I unfortunately don't get to play test all of them. Like I said, a number of them are ones where I've literally run the whole thing before and adapted it to put it onto the page. Some of them I will boot up Foundry and I will load some characters in and a couple monsters and just come to run through a couple rounds just to make sure something's not broken. Wrote a one shot that involved a whole bunch of monsters coming out of a shrine. And the idea was that the party has to hold the line, so to speak. The title of the adventure is Hold the Line. And the final encounter is just a flood of monsters. It's just waves coming. And I recommend using minion rules for it. But even so, I had to make sure that the quantities I was suggesting for each wave wasn't going to just completely destroy the party. So I booted up Foundry and just loaded in some PCs for the level that I expected to publish it for and loaded in some monsters and just kind of ran a few turns of combat and made sure that If people were making reasonable decisions, they'd be able to survive and it'd be still a decent challenge as well. (laughs) That's not a bad idea. Playtesting it just like mechanically in theory, instead of having to get a bunch of people around the table and run through it a few times. I can't say I've ever done that, but I've talked to plenty of people who have, and it seems to work out pretty well as far as that goes. How many one shots, first of all, have you completed at this point? I've got somewhere around. 57 published on the Patreon at this point. Wow. So that's a ton. What have been some of the most valuable design lessons you've learned in putting out all of these one shots and spending all of this time creating encounters, trying to make them interesting and different, etc.? As far as designing a one shot, I think that it's important to 
remember that a lot of times, especially when designing a higher level adventure, it's going to get used by a GM that's got a little experience. I hope people aren't going and grabbing a level six adventure and saying, all right, I'm ready to run my first adventure. (laughs) Never played before. If I want to run an adventure and this one sounds cool, let me grab it. And it's like some level six or level seven thing. All that is to say that it's important to know your audience or expected audience and put a little trust in them. Know that the GM may adjust some things. Sometimes what they really just need is a framework. They don't need to know every last detail about so-and-so is going to do this and then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. And providing that framework so that they can just do a few minutes of prep and be ready to go because the schedule changed or whatever and they just need something to run. Or the players decided to go off in the woods instead of going to town and now they need a little one shot to run in the woods. Putting some trust in the GMs is something that kind of took me a little bit to get comfortable with and realizing I didn't have to write everything down. The lower level adventures, I still try to include the right amount of detail. But the lower level adventures for a newer GM, they don't need all the detail either because they're just going to be trying to get the basics figured out. It just comes back to that simplicity thing of if I'm going to write a one page one shot, I need to make sure I'm not trying to write a book at the same time. Yeah, I could see how it would be tempting to when you've got a bunch of ideas, put them all down. And one page is a lot of constraint, right? It's very finite. And so you've got to boil everything down to its most simple form so that it's consumable by the uh, vast majority of people who are buying it. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite one-page adventure that you have created? Out of all of them that you've been churning out over the years, is there one that kind of sticks out as most memorable or most interesting or just your favorite to work on? I'm really fond of a series that I wrote. That's something else that I started doing was I started writing sequels to my own adventures. So the idea is that, hey, each of them can stand on their own. If you need a level four adventure, here's one. But if you just want to run five sessions, then start at level one and here's one through five, one session each for each level. So I wrote a series of one shots that centers on finding five magic rings and Going back to the pop culture reference, yes, it is a ring of heart and a ring of fire and a ring of earth and a ring of wind and a ring of water. And yes, you are trying to resurrect Capitus Arcanet. But it started out with the level one one shot that I wrote for that, A Hunted Heart. It's one of my free adventures, and it was written for just one player and one GM. So going back to that idea of how do you bring someone new in? How do you get someone started? Well, if you got three people who have played already, what do they do when you're introducing the first player? It is real simple, level one adventure. And at the end of it, you get the magic item. That's really cool. And if you had fun, oh, by the way, here's four more where you are uh, trying to collect the rest of the rings. I just really like how that worked out, how it kind of turned into this collection, how it's got such a nice little way to start out for new players. And also, the other thing is that the maps for them, after that first one, I started having an artist, Ludicrous Limes, 
I don't know if they're doing very much these days in tabletop. I haven't checked in lately, but had the same person do the maps. It came out really great. And I really would love at some point to kind of put them out kind of as a collection for people to grab. But there's two of them that are up for free on the Patreon, and then the rest of them are up for patrons to kind of grab and collect and assemble. It's fun that you're able to kind of add through lines through all of these things that you're publishing, all of these adventures, callbacks to some that only a specific group of people are going to get those references and those jokes, right? But I guess the payoff is even that much better because of it. In your time creating content, what have been some of your favorite opportunities that you've had based on you deciding to do this, or maybe fun connections you've made from being in the world of tabletop content creation? There's been some really cool experiences in deciding to be a creator and actually kind of come up with an idea for a pseudo brand and publish things. There's been some really cool stuff. The first is I got involved pretty much right away whenever I came up with the idea for One Page Mage on the tabletop community on Twitter, started just chatting with people. And it's one of those things where, unfortunately, as things have gone on, I haven't done as well keeping up. But meeting so many creators through that community and supporting each other and just talking about creating has been a lot of fun. And I was able to build an initial kind of following there that whenever I launched the Patreon, I think six months at least from the time that I started being the one page mage to I actually launched the Patreon, I had a little bit of a following and I got like this initial influx of people like saying, okay, here you go. Yeah, I'm signed up. I can't wait to see what you publish next. And I was like, wow, those people I was talking to online, like they actually do care. Like they showed up. And that was such a cool moment. Not too long after I started getting involved on Discord and talking to creators through various servers. Through that process, that's another thing that's just been amazing. I mean, just to be in the same channel as some titans like DM Dave or Tom Cartos or Che Peku, talking with some of these folks, it's just really cool. But honestly, all of that is neat. But one of the coolest things I've done is whenever there's been a few charity events for WAVAW, which is a rape crisis center to support women in need in times of crisis. There's been a few of them on the official like D&D Twitch where they do like these epic level 21 shots and they get B. Dave Walters to come in and DM it and they do a big fundraising drive. Every time I get asked, hey, do you want to include a one shot or some content in the prize package? I say yes, immediately. It doesn't matter if I don't have a clue what adventure I'm going to write. I say yes immediately and I make that a priority to make sure I go write something new to give to people as a reward for donating to a good cause. I think we've done three or four of those now. And it's just so rewarding to see the community rally behind a cause and put their money towards something that literally changes lives. The dollars go directly to funding call center hours for people that need it. And it's just been really rewarding to be able to contribute to that. Well, in a way that I feel gets recognized and 
makes other people feel like they're being rewarded because they're getting something out of it, not just the gratification, but they get one shot and they get a whole bunch of other cool content. There's so much stuff that goes into those bundles now. It's just a really cool thing that the community does. Wow, that is a really cool opportunity and a fun way to know that your work is being used for something that's worthwhile. I think a lot of people like to focus on the negative parts of the tabletop community, but this is a prime example of the good that can be done by people when we all kind of put our heads together and try to do something. I was part of a charity game with Andrea's Adventures, put on by the folks at Adventure Dice. I see them happening all the time, right? One of my previous guests just a few weeks ago, Lord Gazumba, he does charity for children's hospitals. So many people I know are doing this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, it's really cool that you get to help contribute in that way. Yes, indeed. You mentioned some great ones. There's the itch bundles. Sometimes on itch.io, people will put up bundles for great causes. And it's just really great because it's easy to see the toxic side of things whenever you spend a lot of time online. And seeing the good side of things is always very rewarding and even more rewarding to get to be a part of it. There's a lot of those bundles that float around every so often that are great deals and have a ton of fun games in them, but are for good causes. Good call. We're coming down now to the end of the interview here. So I'd love to hear your parting words of wisdom and encouragement, number one, to new and aspiring DMs and GMs out there. And then also, I'd love to hear what advice you've got for people who are thinking about dipping their toes into publishing or content creation in a similar vein to what you've done, where they want to start publishing stuff they've written, that kind of thing. First of all, if you're a person who wants to be a DM, a GM, and play a tabletop game, whether that's D&D or Pathfinder or anything else. There's all sorts of systems, Morkborg and Cypher and anything. If you want to get into that, whether it's because you're a player and now you want to get behind the screen or because you've just seen it online or in pop culture or whatever, and you think it sounds cool and you want to try it, And somehow or another, you found your way to the How Not to DM podcast because you want to make sure you don't screw up. Here's my advice to you. Have fun. (laughs) It's super cliche. It's what you see a lot of places when people say, well, what do I need to do? Number one is have fun. There's a lot of rules. You probably only need about half of them. The rules for a lot of these systems, including 5e, are available free online. You don't need to go buy a big book. Just get something that You can sink your teeth into a short little adventure. It doesn't have to be one of mine. I keep mentioning Matt Colville's. There's stuff on DriveThruRPG for all sorts of systems that you can get that can be a little introductory thing. A lot of systems have a specific starter set or introductory adventure for people to run. Grab one of those. Read through it. Double check online if you're not exactly sure how something's going to go, but don't sweat it, especially. If you're playing with new people, because they're not going to know you did it wrong, it's going to be fine. If they're not new people and they do know that you did it wrong, it's going to be fine also, because you know what? They're going to be happy you're trying something new. You're sitting in the chair. It might be that you're playing for a bunch of people who have always been DM, and they're just glad that they get to be a player, and they're going to let it slide. They understand how it goes. So don't worry about that stuff. Just brush up on the basic rules, find basic set of encounters, and figure out how to get it scheduled. 
<laughs> and if you want to play again, pick the person who is best at scheduling and just straight up tell them you are in charge of scheduling. <laughs> because if you're anything like me, don't put yourself in charge of scheduling. So that's my advice for someone if you want to be a new DM. If you want to be a new creator, if you're like us and you've got a list of one shots that you've run, and you're like, oh, someone else might have fun with that. My advice to you is talk to people in the community, put things out there. Don't come out of the gate and say, hi, here's my $20,000 Kickstarter for a book I had an idea for. Don't do something like that. Don't just throw all your stuff into drive through RPG and say, here you go, $5, everyone go buy my adventure. I would recommend not doing those things. Instead, put some stuff together and just put it out there for free. Talk to some people first so that you actually get recognized when you say, hey, by the way, I wrote a thing. Spend time building up some relationships, meet some people, follow some people, talk to people in a Discord that you're already a part of or something. Maybe there's a games channel or maybe you're part of a video gaming Discord and they've got a little channel for people playing analog games, right? Talk to folks and then show them what you've got and be receptive to feedback because it's really easy to fall in love with what you write. It's really easy to fall in love with the way you imagine it working. Just like we talked about earlier with scenes playing out at the table as the GM. It's really easy to fall in love with a product and get it stuck in your head as this is what it's supposed to look like. And there's a lot of nice people out there and they will tell you, hey, this is really cool. Have you tried this? Or do you think maybe you could tweak this? Or this part of it doesn't work. Don't worry. I think you could come up with something cool instead, but give it a shot. And then go from there. And once you've put out a few and gotten some feedback and kind of gotten things going, then you can start looking at, okay, if I want to try to make some dice money off of this, then where do I go from there? Which marketplace would be best? There's all sorts of different ways. And really try to keep in mind that it's for fun. Unless you really truly are like, hey, I just got laid off and I got a little savings to tie me over and I'm just going to become a TTRPG content creator for my full-time job. I'm going to put in 60 hours a week to really get this thing off the ground. Unless you're like really going for it, which is fine. If this is your dream and you think you got a plan, I'm not going to tell anyone not to go for it. But if you're not doing that, remember that it doesn't have to be your second job. It's for fun. It's for a little extra money that you can put back into the community to buy things. A lot of my Patreon money stays in Patreon because I've subscribed to so many other creators, right? I buy dice and accessories and stuff from people. I put a lot of money back in the community. If you're just trying to subsidize your habit, right, and save up some money to get a cool map commission for your homebrew setting so you can put it down on the table, go for it. But remember that a lot of what goes into this and a lot of the value of building a community is remembering that you want to give back to the community. You enjoy this hobby. You enjoy playing tabletop games. So put something out there that will help others enjoy tabletop games and don't take it too seriously and don't take it too hard if it doesn't work out like you expected. I love it. Where can people find you and One Page Mage if people are interested in buying your one-shots? Where can they find those? 
And yeah, if they want to get in contact with you or anything like that, do you have any upcoming projects or uh, anything you can tell us that's exciting on the horizon? As you know by now, I am the One Page Mage, and you can find One Page One Shots for 5th edition at patreon.com slash onepagemage. That's O-N-E-P-A-G-E-M-A-G-E. And the pinned post on my Patreon is to the master posts. And I have a tier zero almost mage category with all the free stuff. So you just click on that link and you get download links to all my free content right there, as well as links to previews of the paid content. So in case you're wondering like, well, how much stuff do I get if I go ahead and send you a couple bucks a month? Well, it'll show you how many adventures you get and you can look at previews of all of them before deciding whether or not you want to support monetarily. All levels of the Patreon come with backlog. So over 50 adventures I mentioned earlier, you get access to all of them right away and you keep access for all of them as long as you're a patron. It's not like a rotating thing or anything like that. You can also check out onepagemage.com. Caveat, it's due for an update. So we'll see how quickly that comes around. Hopefully by the time this episode is out, I'll have released my first non-5th edition content. That's kind of exciting. I started branching out, as did a lot of people, and looking for other things to try because of the unfortunate incident with the open gaming license at the end of last year and earlier this year. I should have available now, and if it's not, it'll be coming very soon, but as of release of this podcast, you should be able to find also linked on the Patreon somewhere, a hack of Honey Heist. I mentioned it earlier in the episode. It's a really great system for tabletop that the rules fit on one page and it's got a very generous, hey, if you want to make another version of this, go right ahead. Just make sure you credit properly. And so there's lots of people out there who have made hacks of it coming up with variations. And I've got my own that is as of recording, it's just about done. And as of release, you should be able to get it. And I hope folks enjoy that. It'll be a little outside my comfort zone. And I think I'm going to try more of that this year. Awesome. I'm really excited for all that stuff. Website update is good. New adventures is good. That is going to be exciting. An exciting 2023 or start of 2023 for you. I actually had Grant Howitt, the designer for Honey Heist on the show a while ago. And it was super fun to talk to him. All of his games are kind of crazy like that, but I'll definitely have to check that one out. I love Honey Heist, so I'm interested to see what your hack is like. Do you have a sneak peek on what the theme and that kind of thing, what it's going to be? If any of your listeners are fans of Broadway musicals, they will have already caught a couple references based on the things I've said in this episode, and they may have a guess. You're saying you left Easter eggs in my episode. Nice. Well played. <laughs> So now I got to go back and listen to all of this, or I have to wait until it releases, huh? Shame on me if it's not already released by the time people are listening to this. So maybe it won't be a surprise at all to anybody. Well, either way, I will be watching and paying attention. And if it's out already, then awesome. I'll throw it in the episode notes so everybody can check it out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a ton of fun to talk to you. I know it's been a while since we connected first and talked about the possibility, but I'm glad we could make our schedule sync up and I'm really excited to see what you've got cooking for 2023. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for finding a spot for me in the schedule. This has been a fantastic 
conversation. A real pleasure. And thank you so much for everything you do and being an awesome member of the tabletop community. I don't know about that, but I try to be a positive influence here. Anyway, thanks a ton. And uh, yeah, we'll chat real soon. Thank you so much for listening to the season three finale of How Not to DM. A couple of things I want to chat about before we wrap everything up. Number one, Utah folks. Coming in April, my friend Andy from the We Geek Together Tavern in Provo is trying to run the largest D&D game ever, trying to break a record. So if you are local to me here and you want to help participate, check out the episode notes, which will have a link to the Dead Wars, which is what they're calling it. If you want to register as either a DM or as a player, you are more than welcome to come and help participate and help break the record. It's going to be super fun. Next, the Convergence is happening in May still in Evermore Park. That's going to be with Quincy's Tavern, with Critical Dice, with Locals, the Smoking Barrel Tavern, and a bunch more awesome creators. So if you want to check that out, tickets are still on sale, and that can be found in my episode notes as well. And that's a wrap on Season 3. Thanks a ton for sticking with me. If you started only a couple episodes ago, or if you've been here from the beginning, I appreciate you so much, and I really am excited for what is to come with the show. I'm cooking up a lot of fun stuff with my friends behind the scenes, so we'll see what happens. I will be putting out a listener survey, just like I did at the end of last season, to see what you liked and didn't like from the changes I've made this season, and if there's anything else that you would want to see or hear from the show. Please check that out, and if you can leave me some feedback, that would be super helpful in helping me keep the show relevant to you and make sure that you are getting the most out of this time that we spend together. If you enjoy the show and want to support me, there are a few easy ways like tipping me a few dollars on Ko-fi or PayPal or buying some things for your own tables using my affiliate links. I've got links for dice, minis, tabletop gaming accessories, published content, and even geeky apparel. Links for all of these are in the show notes. Last of all, I'm proud to support Diversity Saves, a tabletop role-playing game charity which donates money to diverse up-and-coming creators working on some of their first projects. It's a great cause, and I'm really excited to see what awesome stuff people create from it. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with friends and family who play TTRPGs too. New reviews will be read at the end of episodes as a thank you. Thanks to the team at T4C Studios for the help editing and producing this episode. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat. And the Quickfire Chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by my buddy Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And until next season, roll some Nat 20s for me.